Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio. This is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm happy and very honored to have as my special guest the accomplished songwriter and successful recording artist Kim Stockwood. We'll be talking about travels and the business of music and the life of a career entertainer. We'll get some other insights as well about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So, <laughs> I really appreciate you joining me today, Kim. How are you? I'm good. Uh, yeah. Yes, many decades. You're retro. <laughs> I'm retro now. I, I oh, still yeah. think I was retro before I actually was retro. <laughs> Wasn't it funny, you know, like well, I've been doing these podcasts for a long time now and done done well over probably 150. And, and the one thing that always strikes me is the timelines. When you look back from your vantage point, how, how short the timelines are and how much it, you've done. Yeah. And, but isn't that life as well? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, and it seems to speed up a bit more. But um, yeah, you know, I I uh, I look back. I was going, wow, I had those songs out within three years. How's that possible? I find it hard now to finish a song in five years. <laughs> well, yeah, and then when you look back thirty years, that's wow. You know, a while ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. I moved to Toronto from Newfoundland uh, in September 1992, wow. and uh, I met my husband like a couple months later, who was in the music business. And wow, <laughs> I've been in Toronto for 30 years. Woo! Yeah. So you were born in St. John's, Newfoundland. You were born I on was. the Rock. They still call it the Rock. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> do. And, and great pronunciation, by the way, of that <laughs> Newfoundland. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people still can't get it. I'm just like, it's not that hard. Understand Newfoundland. Well, uh, we have we had lots of friends from Newfoundland, and of course, they they always told the best Newfie jokes, and they would oh, really? uh, <laughs> always make fun of you know their culture and stuff. But they're just such yeah. loving and good people by and large. So, well, I'm, well aware uh, of that. I'm hoping I have some of that <laughs> nice Newfoundland uh, yes. attitude. Well, that's cool. And and so growing up there, the first thing that struck me is, of course, the musical influence. And you must have had just about everything from Celtic to country to Canadiana, rock, folk, all over the yeah, place. Everything. Um, but the thing was, my biggest musical influence probably when I grew up was my dad, because my dad was a music lover. He still okay. is a crazy yeah. music lover. Oh, uh, you know, but he introduced me to Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings right. and uh, Al Martino. Let's mm. go back more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he introduced me to, I discovered Elvis on my own. But uh, yeah, my dad definitely influenced uh, my early music. And then I became a teenager and uh, it was mixed in with Sean Cassidy and Leif Garrett. Oh, or of back course, then, yeah. I think you had to say it, Leif. You had to pronounce it Leif. I was like, what? <laughs> did you have the posters on the wall? Oh, of course I did. Yes, well, I did. there you go. Yeah. See? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a guy, I had Farrah Fawcett and Linda Ronstadt posters. Oh, did you? My, yeah, of course. Yeah. Two beauties. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was wondering about the Celtic influence because you often think about East. You know, I was born in yeah. Toronto, but I'm I'm from I'm on the West Coast on now. The West Coast, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a stereotype worth making or not, but it seemed that that Celtic influence and all the kitchen bands and all yep. the family bands and stuff, Com tons, completely of legitimate. Uh, my dad is a, an accordion player, hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, no one in my family plays fiddle, but. Um, yeah, it's a real th thing. I grew up as well on Newfoundland songs, which were Newfoundland Irish yeah. songs. 
I was going to ask you about your training. Did you have any uh, formal training or was it mostly just? Well, I, I did have some formal training, but I'm not sure how much it stuck to me or I mm. stuck to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I took classical piano for probably eight years, but I was kind of awful because I, I get bored easily. So yeah. I found the practicing so hard. I, I really did not practice like I should have. Right. Um, and I took a few singing lessons, but, um, you know, the weird thing was I had so many musical influences in my life. I didn't know I could sing. Hmm. I, it wasn't like something I'd done my whole life. I only discovered it late in life, like, well, not late in life, but, uh, probably, I don't know, late teens, early twenties. Right. So I'm not sure how much my musical training had to do with my career that went on from there. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think in spite of my lack of, uh, of, uh, of teachings, I think I, I managed to, to have a career, but, uh, yeah, you, know, grateful. yeah you make a, you make a good point though, because uh, I've heard that from quite a few people that the musical training too much of it can, can work against you. So it's, it, it's your best friend, your worst enemy kind of thing, because all the classical stuff is great and everything, but I ended up, you're playing songs that you just wouldn't normally play. Yes, and you're you're doing stuff that you're you don't get real joy from. I guess it's like yeah. anything in life. Yeah. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, I love classical music now. I love jazz. Hmm. If I if I was taking piano lessons now, um, I probably would retain a lot more. But but yeah, back then, um, I had one teacher, and then I I got another piano teacher, and she saw it, and she said, "Well, let's play some stuff that you like." So I went and got the Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever piano book. Oh, cool. And uh, I was like, because I love the Bee Gees. And I was like, can, yeah. can I learn this stuff? Yeah. And, um, you know, I just remember uh, more than a woman to me. Great. And learning how to play that. Yeah. I was like, okay, I dig this now. This is exciting. Yeah. See, and that's yeah. the fun side of it. Because, again, with all those kitchen bands and all the, the, the influences, it's all about fun. Music is exactly. fun. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that training doesn't help. It really depends what you want to do with your training. Yes. Um, but for someone like me who gets bored easily, unless I love what I'm doing, I've already moved on. <laughs> well, and what I found too is, you know, doing scale exercises and arpeggios and stuff, it's very unmusical. It's like learning how to right. type. I mean, you're yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. I've done that and a thousand times. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that because, um, because it's a real gap for some people and, and some mm -hmm. of the best people that I've spoken to had a certain amount of musical training, but it's mostly the influence I think is what, is what the, the, the distinction I would make is the influence yes. is more important than the formal training for most of us yeah um, um you know unless you're you're teaching perhaps um yeah. but yeah like the only thing i'll say is that the more music you are exposed to as a young artist it, it, it cannot hurt you yes. um you just may not be sticking to one form you know it depends if you want to have a, a career in popular music or not as well i think yeah um you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, what is it? 10,000 hours. Right. You yeah. Know, that, that must, that must apply to some musicians. Like you don't become an incredible saxophone player or a, a, a trumpet player, I think, unless you are 
practicing and pra- practicing those scales over and over and over. I was yeah. I was a singer. I, yeah. And, you know, I did obviously take piano, but I never thought I was very good. And uh, it wasn't necessarily my thing. And my, now the, the crazy thing about life is my 17-year-old son during the pandemic started playing piano. He oh, taught nice. himself. Yeah. And uh, he's incredible. He's nice. absolutely incredible. I wish I had half of his yeah. talent. <laughs> Well, the, the cool thing about it too, is that, you know, in the, uh, back in the day, I guess, in the olden days, I would say, if you wanted to be a master carpenter, you would go and hang around a master carpenter and you just yep. learn. There was no formal exactly. training. You, you get the influence and you get yep. the on the job training and you just go yep. and do it. I think that's valuable as well. So you started playing mostly folk music, I guess, at coffee shops and clubs and stuff. You just went out and started singing to people. I did, but it wasn't folk music. Uh, no. Like I said, no. I've had so many, uh, influences from my dad from Newfoundland but my love really gravitated towards you know kind of old country Patsy Cline was and is my favorite singer um so when I first started singing in my er early 20s that's when I you know was playing the pubs um I had a small little band and a a lot of it was old it was uh Elvis and Patsy and my Mm. voice was deeper So it lended better to that. And, you know, and I mixed it in with some songs that I was loving, some Van Morrison at the time and uh, Edie Brickell and, uh, you know, even the Velvet Underground. Uh, So it was it was kind of all over the place. But, yeah, yeah, I wasn't really doing any Newfoundland folk music that didn't come until I got older. Yeah, and realize this music is so incredible. <laughs> well, yeah, it's about life, and it's about yeah. uh, the musical. I mean, a lot of people, it, especially back in the day when there wasn't the saturation now and all the options available, you know, playing cards, playing charades, playing music. Music yeah. was the center of many people's lives. In fact, that was your your fun times, especially uh, in Newfoundland, for sure. Yes, well, yeah, such a big part. And then you decided to move to Toronto. So, so I often ask people, you know, did, was it happenstance or did you have a plan or whatever? And it sounds like you had a bit of a plan. Well, it sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I truly believe the universe has a plan. And yeah. uh, if you are open to that, um, then, you know, you will hopefully end up where you should be. But uh, I had, a university degree. I was working not in music at all. And, um, I, my, I think I, the first time I ever sang in public was at my high school graduation and I was actually playing piano for someone who was singing, but she got sick the day of the graduation. So I I had to sing for her and it was the ode to Newfoundland. Um, that was the first time I ever sang and I never sang again for years and then a friend of mine asked me to sing at her wedding. I'm not even sure why she thought I could do it, but and I sang um, "Songbird" Fleetwood Mac. Oh well, I forgot about that. Um, and uh, and I think I did a pretty good job, I guess. Challenging so, song. A challenging song, yeah, yeah. but it's one of the most beautiful songs yes. ever written. Fantastic, gorgeous. Yeah. So she had faith in me, and nice. uh, I did that, and then. I don't even know how I jumped from there, but you know, I had no intentions of being a singer. I was working in communications and I hosted a radio show in Newfoundland for a while. And, hmm. um, and then, you know, this singing thing kind of took on a life of its own and it was hmm. not my plan. So my friends were like, you know, let's just, let's book a gig. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like how many songs do I have to learn? They're like, I don't know, 30. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, it's crazy. But I, uh, I did. And, um, 
So for two summers, I guess, uh, or a year and a half, I guess it was, from before I moved away, um, I was just singing at uh, little pubs and singing songs yeah. I loved and learning how to sing and meeting Newfoundland musicians. And, um, you know, I, yeah. I really never really wanted to move away. Hmm. But um, the local paper wrote an article. It's just crazy just thinking about this now. Um, this this uh, reporter wrote this article saying Kim Stockwood to leave or not to leave. And I'm like, what are you trying to like dictate my life here? What? I wasn't yeah. upset about it. It was just so novel that they were publicly talking about whether or not I should go for the big time. Yeah. And, um, you know, a couple of days later, my roommate that I was living with at the time, she came home and she said, well, I'm moving out. So I guess you got to move to Toronto. <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone's bailing on me. Yeah. So it literally, I really started to think seriously about it then. And and uh, so, like I said, it wasn't really planned, but they were, these were the, these gentle pushes that were kind of, you know, direct directing me in a, in a certain way. So uh, yeah. that's kind of how it happened. So then once you got there, though, you, you sort of made a decision, I'm going to go and try to talk my way. I guess you talked your way into EMI or you got, you wanted to get some kind of a publishing deal or a record deal. Again, I didn't know what a publishing deal was. I knew what a record deal was. Didn't really yeah. care uh, what kind of deal I got. Just wanted to get in front of people. Um, it sounds so naive now, but you know, yeah. I just kind of believed at that time. I was like, I just need to sing for people. That's what I need yeah. to do. Yeah. And um, I had played Halifax probably four months before I moved to Toronto. Hmm. And an article that was written in the paper there was seen by the head of EMI Music Publishing in Toronto, whose okay. wife was from Halifax. Just, you know, strange things. And uh, he read this story about this girl. And while I was in Toronto, like a month after I was there, I get a call from a friend of a friend saying, we got this call from this Mike McCarty looking for uh, you. And I'm like, well, who's that? And uh, it turns out he's the head of uh, EMI Music Publishing calling from Toronto. Oh. And we told him you were in Toronto. And he's yeah. like, what? He thought I was still in on the East Coast. So we set up a meeting. I went into his office and... Uh, I stood up on his piano stool and, and sang. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if most people know, but music publishers like to sign people who write their own music. Yeah. Um, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, but I did not, I'd only written four songs at that point, I think. Um, I got up and sang, I think, the Lovesick Blues, which was a Hank Williams song. Mm -hmm. um, but I sang Patsy Cline's version of it. Yeah. And, uh you know, I probably should have been singing one of my songs, but I was like, I'm going to go for the, the song I feel the most comfortable with. Yeah. So I did that and I get down off the piano stool and he says, you're signed. And I'm like, to what? Um, I said, that is fantastic. But what am I signing? He said, well, we uh, sign songwriters. And uh, he said, I know you haven't written a lot, but don't worry about it. We're going to make you a songwriter. And um, then we're going to get you a record deal. And then we're going to do this and that. And I'm like, oh, cool. All right. Wow. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for filling in the gaps there because it seemed pretty cheeky, you know, like you're a girl from, uh, from yeah, St. John's Newfoundland, Newfoundland yeah. and you go to Toronto to the big city and now you're in this guy's office and you got a deal. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's rare. That has to be I know. very it, rare. I, I think it is. And, and believe me, I, I never take any of it for granted. Um, even though like I had a, uh, 
I don't know if it was confidence or courage or just like uh, no fear, but I was like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Um, And, you know, I've I've been writing about this lately, just journaling a bit, just about how when we're younger, um, we, we don't have a lot of fear. As we get older, we see what can happen. Uh, that fear creeps in a lot. But back yeah. then, I was just like, I'm going to do everything I can um, to to see what I can I can accomplish here. And well, if yeah. I'm not if I'm not good enough, it's not going to happen. But, well, I like yeah. that because a psychologist said, I forget, I, I wish I could remember who said it, but they said that that kids don't know what they can't do. That's what the youthful right. spirit is, right? You, you're not right, right, right. You know, jaded by life or anything. You don't know what you can't do, so you try everything. Yeah. You embrace it all. So maintaining that youthful spirit is what I've tried to do through yeah. my whole life and remember yeah. that lesson. Yeah. And, uh, you have a lovely voice, by the way. I was, I was oh, checking you out online earlier. You have oh, a lovely voice. Well, thanks. Well, Singing voice that. and speaking voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the middle of nine days straight here and I got to be Bob oh, Seger wow. tonight. So I'm going to oh, be my uh, gosh. doing a big theater show tonight. Come on. What's your favorite <laughs> Bob Seger song? Well, you know, it's funny. I always do Main Street, but, uh, right. you know, Hollywood Nights we always end with. And I, I love so many Bob Seger songs. But oh. Against the Wind is really, like, that's a powerful oh. song. I, I send, so good. you know, a message every time I sing that song. So yeah, yeah. lots. I love it. You know? I love Bob Seger. Yeah, yeah. My dad, uh, I said Bob Seger. <laughs> Bob Seger, yeah, Seger yeah. Uh, is one of my dad's favorite artists. And um, yeah. Every, the minute that he is allowed to play a Christmas song and he'll play a Christmas song, <laughs> November one, it's little drummer boy. And my mother can't stand Christmas music. And she's like, ah, well, but cause he's, but, just, he's playing it. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. No, that's neat. And then, so, so you end up with a record deal. I mean, you know, on a major record label or, you know, a medium level to a major record label, your, yeah. your world must've changed rather quickly. Like once you got that. Um, it did and it didn't. So like, okay. so I signed the publishing deal first. So that was like November 92. Hmm. And then for the next few months, um, I was writing, meeting people. But it's amazing the wind of a story like that. Like just looking back right now, it's just incredible that it seems like another lifetime ago in a way. And I'm like, is that me? Because I can't even see myself doing something <laughs> like that today, of course. Um yeah. But so after I signed the EMI publishing deal and, you know, the story around the industry was Newfoundland singer signs publishing deal by singing cover songs on piano stool. Oh, (laughs) so it was a big story. And so everyone was kind of interested in me. Well, I, and they, they still didn't know if I had talent or not, but, um, but I basically did a big showcase and my publisher helped. So I did it. uh, It was actually St. Patrick's day. 1993 at the Horseshoe in Toronto and uh, it was an East Coast night and um, you know looking back now I, my band was the Bright Brothers who are some of the most incredible musicians in this country nice. how lucky was I yeah but so from that showcase I um, I, I kind of got my record deal and I kind of got my husband too <laughs> yeah oh nice well it sounds like they yeah. set you up to win right I mean they put you with the good people put you in the right spot and they set you up to win and then you walk through the door right I I think so. I think so. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if I, if I didn't sing well, no matter what they had done, it wasn't going to help me. But, um, but you know, I did everything I could. I practiced and practiced and practiced and, and tried to be as me and as real and as funny as I could be. And it worked out. And I, I mean, it took a, a while. It was probably a year later. No, maybe six months later that I signed my record deal. Yeah. But, um, 
yeah, like there were a few labels there checking out the, you know, this Newfoundland chick who yes. gets on with this, right? It's, it's quite the story. And what was the connection with Randy Bachman and Matthew Sweet in that you got to? Well, that none. I had none until um, I was making my very first record in 94, I guess, or early 95. Um, and uh, the producer of my first record um, had produced some Matthew Sweet. Uh, so that's how he got on my record. And okay. I, I was, I was a huge fan. It wasn't me. Yeah. It was just, you know, working musicians in LA. Uh, you know, there was some incredible musicians on that first record and, and it was just because I was in the right place. And my producer at the time, uh, knew these musicians and with yeah. Randy Bachman, it came through a connection, probably through the, the publisher, just, uh, would you like to write with him? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course. So I went to Salt Spring Island where he was living at the time. Yep. And uh, we wrote a whole bunch of songs. And it was such an incredible time. Such a lovely person. Yep. So that's what I mean about your world changing rather quickly. Because you're in you're in St. John's one day figuring out what you're trying to do. The next day you're on the West Coast writing songs with Randy Bachman. It must have came fairly yeah. quickly. Well, looking back on it now, yeah, it's, um, I haven't thought about this in so long, but at the time I, it was a machine. So I was just, I was in the middle of this and, and, you know, I, I was trying to move forward with excitement and humility. I wasn't trying to, you know, believe too much of everything, Um, just to be very grateful for all the, um, the opportunities I was, I was given at that time. So yeah, I was like in my twenties and I was going to Nashville a lot and meeting lots of people. And, you know, I remember, uh, meeting Keith Urban, um, at one of the first places he lived in Nashville. He, he lived, um, in a house with a couple of people I knew and, uh, he was signed to EMI publishing Australia. And uh, yeah, I'm just like, wow. At the time, I didn't know. I just remember seeing, you know, this guitar player. I went to see him play in a little pub yeah. and uh, what an incredible guitar player. Super talented guy. I, I remember the so first talented. time I saw him, I saw the video and I thought, oh my God, who is that? Yeah, he's the real deal. <laughs> yeah. He's just an unbelievable musician, singer, yeah. songwriter. Yeah. And and he was a lovely guy. Yeah. But, but my point is, at that time, like he was just starting to become the Keith Urban, yeah. um, you know, you just like everybody, they're all just people you're, and you're just all trying to, uh, create and, um, be true to yourself and in the middle of this and, uh, you know, say no to things when they don't feel good. Yeah. So <laughs> that makes sense. So you ended, yeah, no, I, I hear you. You got to You got to sort of, in a sense, follow your nose wherever it goes and mm-hmm. trust your gut feelings, I guess, yeah. about certain yeah. things. So you ended up in Nashville. So the, again, it, it comes back to that genre thing, you know, like I'm a yeah. bit, bit confused these days about how many ways there are to categorize music. Cause when your album came out, it's Bonavista, I guess is how you pronounce it. Right. Um, well, that, or Bona, Bonavista. Bonavista. Yeah. So how I'm not going to judge you. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you, how do you categorize that? Because that wasn't country or, or no. any, what was the category? What, how did uh, the record company categorize that? Well, you know, it was, it was very confusing because I was like, well, where are you going to put it in the record stores? Because there wasn't alt country. There wasn't, um, uh, you know, pop country or 
alternative pop. There, there was pop, country, rock. I guess there was pop then. Yeah, there was. What Canadiana um, was that a top? Was that a not category? Really. No, not really. We have it now, thank God. But yeah. Uh, yeah, like I, I was kind of all over the place, and um, it's kind of what I wanted to do. Like, I, I kind of went from singing something that sounded really country to singing something that sounded like singer songwriter pop and um luckily the record company were okay with that but i mean i know record stores were very confused about where to put it you know i remember someone someone saying the cover is so misleading and i'm like what Hmm. because they thought that the the uh a cover looked more alternative than what the record was right Uh, and uh, i mean i understand what they were saying because in that time they're trying to figure out where to put it um yeah. yeah, I wouldn't really know where to put it today either. But I mean, obviously, it's more country pop than anything. But you know, the last song, "How Many Miles," is kind of um, Celtic rock or Celtic pop, mm-hmm. I guess. So, so yeah, the, it's all yeah. over the place. Well, then, kind of like me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what musicians do. like. Like we take all the influences we've had. I mean, my dad used to always say, "Well, you're listening to acid rock." I said, "We listen to Cat Stevens and James Taylor. We listen to Led Zeppelin. We listen to whatever Deep Purple. Yeah. Like it's all over the place." What are you talking? It about? It is all over the place. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And we love it. We love it all. So, so when you when you're trying to sell it, you're not going to be in the country rack. And yeah. you know, alt country. I didn't even really know. I think that's a newer. It, it wasn't. Term. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So well, the crazy thing was they used to say, "Well, what would you put it under?" Like the question just said, and, <laughs> yeah. and I said, "Can you just put it under good?" <laughs> yeah, music. It's uh, good music. Yeah. So know? then, then your album got re-released, and you put the yeah. song "Jerk" on there, which is yeah. you know it was great. I mean, that's the kind of song I've I've said to a number of people, but that's the kind of song everybody wants and almost nobody ever gets because it puts you on the map <laughs> immediately. But again, that was like alt pop, I guess, or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And um, again, um, you know, obviously, I was the vessel that made it happen, but um, it was just the universe kind of conspiring. Uh, you know, what's what's the chance that you release your debut album and it does okay, but not great. And then you're writing with your main co-writer one day after your records come out and you start writing this song. And I only, it was probably 70% finished. I couldn't really even finish it until I got in the studio and recorded it. Mm. But we wrote this song and every time we would go back to, to to like work on it again it used to crack me up and i was like if this is cracking me up maybe this is going to crack other people up yeah um so i went and played it for my a and r guy and he just he looked like he i i don't even know how to describe the look on his face it wasn't like seeing a ghost it was just this big grin that came on his face hmm. and he said okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like, what are the chances that this would ever happen today? I don't know. He said, we're going to record Jerk. We're going to record another song. We're going to take two songs off your already released album. And we're going to go put those two songs back on the album and release it again. Bizarre. And and I didn't really even understand how that was physically possible to do yeah. and i said but because i'd sold so few records i don't even know what it was like maybe 10 grand in, yeah. uh, the first release and i said but what about the people 
who bought the first version of it? Are they going to be really pissed off that they don't get this song? And um, he said, well, if somebody wants to exchange the record, we're going to let them do it. I'm like, but don't oh, you wow. have to, don't you have to do this with record stores <laughs> to make sure they're cool with it? Yeah. It's so crazy. Like the fact that jerk just was meant to be is yeah. uh, that's it. it. It was released and became the biggest song of my career next to marshmallow world, which is probably yeah. the other one. And marshmallow world probably gets played more in two months than jerk gets played in a year. Yeah. That's a funny, yeah. but, but the thing is you need that song. That's a career defining song. Cause that, that's what the first time I heard of you. As soon as I heard that song, yeah. I knew exactly who you were and everybody right. talked, Oh, did you hear that song? Did you hear that? song? I mean, that's the song you want because otherwise yeah. you're just an obscure artist. That's never yeah. going to break through that. Yeah. And it might've been yeah. like that. It, it might've been like, I, I love my first record without jerk. I, I yeah. loved it. I love those songs, but and I'm still so proud of Jerk because um, yeah. I think more than anything, you know, it it, it it shows me as a person as well, my sense of humor and yeah. um, just surviving things and not letting people treat you meanly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, so where was that recorded? It was recorded at Metalworks, actually. Oh, was it? Metalworks okay. Metalworks Studio. No more, yeah. Fantastic. Yep. Um, yeah, at lovely Gilmore's. I think I still, I think they still kept my poster up on the wall there, which is nice. very nice. I actually, I think I saw it in the Triumph documentary. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, cool. I was so yeah. proud. So no, that's thank nice. you, Gil. Yeah, yeah. So it's still on the wall there from my second record, actually. But we recorded it there. And um, like I said, it was not completely finished when hmm. I was in the studio. And I was still looking for a few a few lines and they showed oh. up that night and the outro of, uh, of, you know, where I'm speaking at the end of it, you're yeah. not a very nice person. Um, you know, that was all off the cuff. Yeah. And it, it kind of made the song, you know, sometimes that stuff is the coolest. Right. And then that was back yeah. in the day when you had to have a video too. So that I like the concept yeah. video with the splashing, the paint and stuff, but, <laughs> but you didn't get it on the guitars. I noticed no. that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Although they might have, it might have been a cheap guitar. Oh no, no, no. no. They had because I don't think there was a guitar around when I was throwing the paint. Yes, well, because yeah. they got the they got the paint splattered uh, suits on, but that was probably right. uh, the, the the actual suit. And then he was, I think he was playing a three thirty five, which I thought you can't put any paint oh, wow. on that guitar. No. Yeah. No, that was his guitar for sure. So yeah, he, that was, there was no throwing of the paint around when uh, yes. the real guitars were there. <laughs> so what do you think when you watch that now? What what goes through your head? I haven't watched it in such a long time, but um, I, I love that video. I think yeah. it's 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 colorful, and I still play with those guys. Oh, good. Regularly, nice. Well, not not that regularly. I've just kind of started doing cover gigs again, which I love, yeah. but. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it's the best video I've ever done. Um, and it, it's a simple concept and it still cracks me up in a couple of places near yeah. the end, you know? And well, uh, yeah. Well, that was right at the time when videos were still important, especially for a song that, mm -hmm. that reached that level. You had to have a, yeah. a quality video to go with it. So that was cool. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about the international success? Cause you had lots of success in Canada and then um, maybe modest success in the U S but you had some other success around the world as well. Right. That song went yeah. beyond Canada. Uh, yeah. The, the, I mean, jerk was played around the world. Um, I never really went to other countries other than the U S for it. Yeah. 
Hmm. Um, I got the the album got released um, on Curb Records in America, which was the the label that Leanne Rhymes basically made famous. I have hmm. I don't even know if it still exists, but the, it was released, and they were very very committed to it. But the states is so big that jerk became a hit in in certain towns and couldn't connect at all in other hmm. you know because i my machine was only so big um but where they could get it on the radio people it reacted to it so it was it was so bizarre like in atlantic city i i did a show at the uh, planet hollywood big show there and then no one knew me about 15 minutes away yeah <laughs> i could, couldn't get any but it was it was uh it was a lot of fun. You know, we went all over the country and uh, I still say it this day. I mean, it's crazy now. Yes, it would have been great if it had become a, a huge hit in the States, but there are other things that happened in my life that probably would not have happened if Jerk had become a huge hit in the U.S. Yeah, so who knows? So I, I, I'm fine. Well, and also when you read about the U.S. market, like books like Hitman and stuff, I mean, it takes a lot of money to make a hit song in the States. I yep. mean, one of the stories in that book is about Pink Floyd who they wouldn't pay the record, the independent record to promoters. They wouldn't pay that money. So they, mm. so there was major radio stations that weren't playing Pink Floyd songs wow. from the wall wow. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you gotta be kidding me, but it yeah. was, you gotta pay. And, and even Ian Thomas said that to me in, in his interview that, uh, he could only go so high on those charts without, um, the record company paying substantial yeah. amounts of money. Absolutely. So. And there came a point when I kind of realized what was going on. I was just like, if this is meant to be, it's going to happen. And we, cause you are, you're kind of bribing people to play yep, your music 100%. in a way. It's, it's payola. And, and, yeah. Yep, absolutely. And, and you know, we, certain radio stations in Canada still, it's, it's a mini bribe. It's not, it's not the same, but it's like, okay, if you play this record, we can get you this interview or whatever. Um, it's a lot more acceptable, but, um, but yeah. Uh, and they and Curb did spend quite a bit of money. I feel bad that you know yeah. I never recouped any of it, but mm. uh, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah. So you never got to go to Europe or anything. You never did any shows over there. No, not. No. Okay. I, I went as as a human being yeah. Uh, yeah. Many, many times, but yeah. uh, not as an artist. No. Yeah. And then your second album came out in in ninety nine. Is that right or? Late ninety eight um, or early. I don't 99. know. You probably. Yeah. I I I haven't looked it up in so long. But you probably, if you say ninety nine, I'm going to well, say it, yes. That it must right. have been late eight ninety eight or ninety nine. That was twelve years old, and right. uh, I remember that well. Great piano and strong melody. And yeah, that, that song. And, and and the piano player on that, um, Peter Vitesi was his name. And uh, like I said, I didn't go to Europe as a recording artist for shows. But I did go for songwriting uh, sessions, okay. and um, I went to this really incredible uh, songwriting retreat in Devon, England, that EMI Publishing was doing with artists okay. that from all over the world. You know, I met some incredible people, and one of them was this this guy, Peter Vitesi, who was Annie Lennox's piano player and musical yeah. director, and we wrote this song, and again. 95% of my second album was recorded. I wrote this song at this songwriting camp, came back, played it from my publisher, and he said, oh, well, there's the lead track. Well, there's the lead excellent. single right there. And the playing yeah. is excellent. Really oh, he's good. he's yeah. an unbelievable player. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So oh, again, uh, that became the, the name of the album. And <laughs> um, yeah. So then 
you got me on the genre thing again because like you and me is is like sort of folk influenced <laughs> alt pop but then like yeah. still still is like a heavy tune like heavy drum big drums and yeah uh i don't know uh, that was the producer michael phillip yeah. voyevoda who produced jerk yeah. um and he did not produce jim rondinelli pr- produced bonavista but then when we went and re-recorded jerk it was uh it was michael phillip and when we went to do the next record, we're like, Hmm, I think Michael Phillip has to do this whole record. Yeah. He, you know, he did such a great job with jerk. So it was him. And, you know, he's produced the bear, the bare naked ladies, um, the real statics, many, many people. Yeah. Um, and just an incredible guy. Yeah. That second record is probably even more all over the place. <laughs> well, just, I noticed how, you know, the, the heavier drums and the more sort of yep. impact, I guess it was just more yep. in your face than the, than the sort of, I don't know. The like, countryness of the yeah. first one. Yeah. 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 And good too. But uh, you and me is such a great song too. I love that. I remember that one really well. Your voice sounds well, great in there. Great production. But, just well, really. it's just kind of funny of you and me. Uh, I was hosting a, I think it was Canada's Walk of Fame event uh, years ago. And I was there and um, I, it, you know, it's actors, it's musicians, blah, 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 blah. And I see this uh, actor, um, Calm Fjord, who's an incredible, incredible artist, uh, actor. And um, he comes over and I'm with these other people and we're interviewing people. And he comes over with his wife and I'm like, you know, we're asking some questions and he's like, Oh, you're, you're Kim. I don't even know if he knew my last name probably, <laughs> but he started singing a bit of you and me to me. Oh, wow. And I, it, it was one of those moments. It's like, I cannot believe that that just happened yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that he knows that song. Yeah. I ran into him a few times after and he's like, yeah, I just love that song so much. I was yeah. like, well, that is the sweetest thing ever. You just yeah. don't know what song is going to connect with people. And they are also different that they connect with different people. Yeah. And again, from a musician's perspective, we don't care from a, from a marketing perspective, they care, but you know, that's uh, so it's all good by me. I thought it was all great. And then, uh, (laughs) so back to the water, there was, Mm -hmm. uh, there's some note that I found that there was a documentary on CMT, but I could not find it. I tried. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it was, if it's, um, yeah, I guess they never ever put it. They put the Shea show, I think, up. But um, but yeah, back to the water. Uh, when I decided I was going to do the record, uh, I said to my manager, I was like, we should really pitch a TV show of me going home. I've been living in Toronto a long time, and it's about me going home to record this record. Yeah. Um, and and the influence of my parents and my grandmother and. You know, my dad's accordion playing, my grandmother's uh, church organ playing. Yeah. So yeah, we we actually pitched it, and they said yes. And um, and uh, yeah, my grandmother is in it. My dad is in it. <laughs> well, I so can yeah. you find it? Can you can you post it somewhere? Because I wanted to watch uh, it, and I looked everywhere like that I could think of, and I couldn't find it. I have no idea, Dan. I haven't thought about whether or not that was online or not, but I will check with my manager just yeah. to see. If you don't mind, I'd love to watch yep. it. And, uh, yeah. Well, cool. And so did you do other studio work? Did you sing on anybody else's projects? Were you? Uh, I'm sure I have. I sang actually on a, a, a couple of Stomp and Tom tunes. He sang, oh, uh, nice. he, he recorded a song called the Confederation bridge. And I remember driving yeah. out in the middle of winter in my little cabriolet in the snow, <laughs> like, and you will do that for Stomp and Tom. Yes. It was one of the uh, 
most incredible experiences of oh, my life, truthfully, to uh, to sing with him a little bit. So, yeah. and yes, I'm I'm sure I have at this moment. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. No. Very cool. And and what was the Roots Music Canada thing like? Where you where you do the acoustic versions? You did Back to the Water on that. I think that was just like a a, a little uh, session thing that they do online that many artists have done. I, you just go to their studio and and play that. But I played, uh, you know, when Back to the Water came out, I did a lot of um, of performances just promoting the record, and uh, you know that yeah. record. I never sang Newfoundland music, but really, uh, before that record. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I say this to people, the song, if you ask me one song I would like to be remembered by that I've recorded, it would be the St. John's Waltz, yeah. which is, um, it's on that record it was written by my mentor, Ron Hines, who passed away a few years ago, okay. but, uh, no, very cool. And then, so that, that kind of leads me to my next question about, you know, having a message in your songs or, you know, did you, when you're songwriting, is there any kind of message that you're trying to get across? I guess in that case, it was the reminiscence or that, that feel that you have the East coast kind of family mm -hmm. community feel. Of back to the water, you mean? Yeah. Or any of yeah. your songs. Cause some songwriters, as you know, you know, they have a message, maybe a social message or, or an uplifting message, something like that. Did you ever, yeah. were you ever directed by that? Uh, always, always. But every, every song is different, um, of what the message is. Hmm. Um, you know, truthfully, some songs are just to make people feel good. Yeah. Uh, sure. but you know, I, I think overall, if I were to say what is my message, I guess it is uh, to to believe in yourself and to not give up and to try to stay positive and uh, to overcome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite a positive person. Um, you know, midlife uh, has sucked some of that positivity out. <laughs> but i keep striving i yeah. don't give up i keep going well so, you you yeah. mentioned the triumph documentary and that's one of the comments that there was made in there is that their songs are positive like uplifting right. and, I, yeah. and i like that too i i'm very much the same way but the thing is there's always a rub there like when you, so when you write a song like jerk and that comes out mm -hmm. then you got a couple other you know 12 years old you got a few other songs that do well you end up sort of the record company wants you to write hit songs, right? So yep. a, a friend of mine had a, a successful song and the record company called him up and said, we need 10 more songs like that. And he goes, why? Wow. That's not the way I write songs. Like, I can't, I'm not a what? machine. No, but they, <laughs> they want to market it. So they want the success and yeah. they want, so when you sit down to write a song, were you driven by, by that part of it at all? Like we need another um, hit, you know, Kim, we need another hit song here. But, I would like to say absolutely not, but of course, you know, you're in a contract with someone and yeah. you're trying to fulfill your end of the bargain. But I also knew and know now that um, the more you try to force something, the more it's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so, you yeah. know, jerk and 12 years old, uh, they were gifts. I was very blessed that they happened, but you it's kind of like you reach up and pull things out of the sky and yeah. lyrics and music <laughs> and, and, and sometimes you can do that and try to put it together and it's almost there, but it's not. Yeah. And, and a lot of times you don't even know why it doesn't have it. You yeah. know, yeah. I just knew with jerk that it had it because it was so honest 
And it was when we wrote it and I just said the first thing that came up, that came to my mind when those chords started. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know where that came from, uh, but I knew, oh my God, this is hilarious. It really is. It's the magical but, combination yeah. of lyric and everything that comes together. The, the stars uh, align and Aligned. that comes out, right? And yeah. it is magic. I, yeah. it, it is magic. And, uh, you know, but some of the songs that I wrote that didn't become hits, I'm just as proud of. Um, yeah. And and they were gifts too. It's just that they didn't fit a format or they couldn't get on the radio or something like that. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, you know, I talked to Christopher Ward about, you know, writing a black velvet and stuff right you know yeah. and, and then that song of course becomes your biggest song but he's a prolific songwriter and really is right. intentional about writing hit songs but you think you can come up with another black velvet i know um no but you know what i'm sure his he's thankful that he had one black velvet for sure and he's got lots of great <laughs> yeah. songs i mean some of his great earlier songs. stuff too but but you know the point is like he would sit down and and say okay we need to write a song that's going to be commercially viable here or like a jim right. valance right who's really yeah. just mercenary about it and saying yeah. i'm going to write hit songs here this is the formula and, yeah. but they do you know <laughs> him do and brian wrote 100%. so many 100 and, and it's it's so admirable to figure out how like how do they tap into that how do yeah. you because you're plugging into something otherworldly when you create something like that now you know the start of the magic you know you're plugging into you know writing the lyrics and and finessing it, you know, that is, it's more of experience and, and art after a while, but yeah. the core of something, um, that has magic, um, that's the seed. And yeah. then, you know, there's, there's lyrics and some lyrics in jerk and in 12 years old, I don't like, like, mm -hmm. I don't think they're perfect songs by any means. Um, but Hey, th there was more magic than not. Well, for sure. And it's that connection. I think that's what it is. And I think people like Jim yeah. Balance, you know, can, can, can come up with things that connect with people. So it's not necessarily like, like when I talked to him, he said like, he's no musical genius. He said, I'm not really good at anything. I'm not a great guitar player, not a great drummer. I'm not even a great songwriter in, in that sense, other than I can do things that connect with people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which I don't know if I you know, agree with that, Jim. I think you are pretty good. <laughs> he's, he's great. But the thing is, um, you know, so when you sit down to write, you know, you're not necessarily chasing a hit song, but I guess you're chasing something that's going to connect with people and trying yeah. to recreate that again. Yeah. You know, so and and the I guess the test in a way used to be for me, and I'll still pick up the guitar sometimes and I'll just see what comes out. And if it moves me, I know I'm doing something right. If I feel like I'm just singing words, um, not so much, but, um, yeah, it's, it's the vessel, you know, what's going to come through. So I wanted to ask you about the Christmas album you did in 2006. And, and so that marshmallow world that you mm -hmm. alluded to, that's got that it, it's, um, an animated video, which is super cool. Wait, or, now I, yeah. I don't even know. I haven't even seen this. This is not mine. Someone must've made that. Well, you saying there's a video for it. Yeah, somebody made an animated video with a scantily clad woman. Oh, um, wow! Dancing like a like a um, caricature, like a character, okay. like a, a, yeah. a doll or something. Yeah. So I, yeah. I thought you were that was part of it. Nope, not oh, mine. Interesting. No, nope. oh, right. I don't know if I'd have a scantily clad woman in my marshmallow world video. I think I'd be going back to the fifties uh, if I were to do a video yeah. for that. Well, you should, you should check it because, uh, because I watched it and it was, but anyway, so I was going to ask you about the Christmas album. Cause a lot of, so who, what was the impetus for that? Did the record company want you to do that? Or was it just something you wanted to do? 
um, I love Christmas music like my dad mm. and I love Christmas. And, um, you know, I, I joke to my friends, listen, if I want to play a Christmas song in August, I'm going <laughs> to do it because if I need to pick myself up, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Like my dad is waiting. Like he'll play little drummer boy probably in, you know, May, if he needs <laughs> to hear it, he'll do it. Um, but I, I think the whole thing was, uh, I I had recorded Marshmallow World before I recorded the Christmas album, and okay. it it had it had done so well that um, you know one day the label was just like you should do a whole record. I was like, yeah, okay, great, I will. Mm. I'd like to record some more Christmas music actually okay. because uh, yeah, yeah I, I I love Christmas music. I like old Christmas music like Jim Reeves. I well, yeah. love Jim Reeves. It creates and the that Elvis feeling. Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel sad. I've never seen it, but I don't think Patsy Cline ever recorded any Christmas songs. I don't mm. know if you've ever seen I them. Don't, but I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't find them. Yep. Yeah. Well, if she, had she had more time, her own time exactly. of death, right? But um, um, Unbelievable. Yeah. So Look at the body of work she had before, though. Died well, yeah. 30. It's amazing, Incredible. I know. Well, that's yeah. Jim Crochet, too. I sing lots of his songs, and he was well, born in 43 and died in a plane crash in 73. So he was 30 geez. years old. All those great songs that he left wow. this world. Ah, incredible. So, yeah. So the business side of it, um, you look after your own career now? You still have a record deal? That, nope. I have, um, I have myself and my manager. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the last thing I recorded was with, I, I'm also in a group called Shea. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a really good run as well. And, um, uh, I say I I am in because, you know, we kind of took a break for years, um, and we just started doing some performances again and, uh, we've recorded a couple things in the past couple of years, but, uh, yeah. So, um, I, my, I has, I still have the same manager, Sherry Jones, who's in Halifax, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I want to record yet. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Well, no, I was curious about that because a lot of times, you know, there's there's a sort of an arc, you know, and you've got your record mm -hmm. deal and you're doing the tours or you're doing whatever. And then, you know, a lot of that goes away. And then a lot of people yep. I've noticed end up looking after their own careers because uh, things are trimmed down and you can sort of keep the money you make, so to speak. And, uh, yep. you know, it's, it's a better well, life. I, I've like over the years, you know, I've only been making so much music, but I have other things that I do that my manager manages. Like I, I, I do voiceover work nice. um, yeah. and I've done it for, I don't know, 20 years now. And I, I love it. Um, so I do that. I do a lot of hosting and uh, she, so she manages it, the whole thing. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's good. It sounds like a good setup. And, and I was going to ask you about Shay as well, because I listened to Happy Baby and Beauty and Freedom yeah. and a bunch yeah. of those songs. Yeah. A deeper, yeah. deeper themes and uh, more reflective kind of music, would you say? Uh, yes. Um, you know, Happy Baby, the, the biggest hit that we had, which people know us from, was, you know, a very upbeat pop song oh, sure, about yeah. trying to be happy in the moment mm -hmm. uh with where you are and who you are and not trying not to be preoccupied by what else is out there and what you don't have in your life yeah so um but you know i think the strength of shay is um our voices together uh it's it is uh, otherworldly and i, yeah, I used beautiful. that earlier and when yeah. i was speaking but um we are all so different and our voices together are um it's pure magic. And we just actually, uh, we played a charity uh, benefit a few weeks ago and 
it was like no time had passed. Nice. And we actually sang uh, The Maker with Daniel Lamois. Uh, one of the top 10 moments for sure. And yeah, it, was, nice. it was just incredible. Yeah. yeah. So just so our listeners know, it's Shay, S-H-A-Y-E, and the song Happy, Happy Baby. Real nice, yeah. great hook and yeah. good feel-good tune. Yeah. For sure. But I would say, uh, again, if there was one Shay song I would want people to listen to, to see our voices, um, it would probably be No no Mermaid. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, awesome. Oh, that's great. And uh, so what have you got going on right now? You're doing more recording. You got your voiceover work. You did some radio work too, I guess, over the years too, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right now I'm uh, taking care of a kitty. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. That's always good. Right now. Um, work-wise, I've got a couple of, uh, things going on. Um, I can't really talk about them right now, but, um, but I've started doing a a cover night and I've had some of my friends come out and guest. Um, Andy Kim came, uh, to the first one in November and, uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm doing another one of those in a month. Um, so I'm excited about that. Well, it sounds like you've surrounded yourself with really positive people. I had uh, Andy Kim, of course, on the podcast here. And oh, fan- great. Fantastic human being. Just yeah. really comes across well. Yeah, I love that man. Genuine guy. Really good. I love him. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing about the music business. It can kind of eat you up if you let it. But if you surround yourself with good people and uh, yeah. have a positive mindset, it sure works out great. It's It does. Know. And it's, it's like, you know, be yourself. And um, if something doesn't feel right, then uh, walk away. Yeah. And like you said, um, surround yourself with good people. Well, yeah. And that's, uh, I think that's the key because you, you gravitate towards the positive energy and then you you repel the negative energy, I think just as yep. a, as a way that you live. Right. Yeah, so, absolutely. That's I try. Yeah. Good, good <laughs> yeah, for you. Too. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great. Really great having you on the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Well, well, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it was really nice talking to you. And uh, like I said, I, I was uh, checking out your singing. It's it's really great. Oh, great. Well, thanks. I've been fortunate enough to make a good living for the last 40 years in on the West Coast. Wow, here, so incredible. I'm very, very thankful for that. Many thanks to Kim Stockwood for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her incredible life in the music business. More information is available at kimstockwood.com. Excellent website. Lots of stuff on there. Facebook, uh, Kim Stockwood. Uh, YouTube channel, Stockwood Kim. And then Instagram, at Kim Stockwood. Check it out. Lots of great stuff. Some really good songs and just, just a real good feel all around. So thanks, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. We invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.